Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, my name's Philip Ross. I'm the, um, as I said, I'm the former mayor of Letchworth Garden City and I'm the chairman and co-founder of the New Garden Cities Alliance. Um, I say I'm, I'm not a planner or an architect. Uh, it's, not, it's not my day job. So, if, but I've, and if you've come here to hear me talk about chocolate box houses and how every new development should look like Letchworth, then you're going to be a little bit disappointed because that's not what I'm going to be talking about. I'm going to be talking about. I'm going to want to talk about the dream that was Letchworth, the actual original goals and ideas that were Letchworth. And I want, to I want to tell you about that shared dream, those goals that underpinned the first garden city and that should be underpinning the new garden city movement that we've got today. I am, I am a citizen of Letchworth still. Uh, I'm not born and bred Letchworth. Um, uh, we moved there in 2000 and then it was just called Letchworth. Um, it's funny because it had been a garden city but had such an association with radical politics from when it was originally produced, actually, uh, you know, of socialism, vegans, people walking around in sandals and everything. The town kind of wanted to get away, away from all this and dropped this, the term garden city. Um, and then it came back in, in 2003, actually, ironically, because uh, I think uh, people thought that it would raise house prices. And I think it would have had Ebenezer Howard turning in his actual grave. And one of the great ironies for me is that actually uh, when we were moving to Letchworth, uh, we moved to Letchworth because we didn't think it was a garden city. Because we looked at Wellin. My wife said, what about Wellin, garden city? That sounds nice. I said, that sounds far too posh. We won't be able to afford to ever, ever go, in there, go and live there. But... Um, I, I have understood that outside of the, uh, the planning world, uh, the Garden City term, you know, for me when I moved to lectures had very little meaning. People thought it was about flowers on the roundabouts or something, or it was about an expensive place or something. Um, do I understand that for, as planners, it's, it's page one of the, of the planning course about Letchworth and actually having kicked off, having kicked off the movement. I think if you went back to Letchworth, I wouldn't want you, like I say, to actually try and build a place like Letchworth, but I think you can draw inspiration from Letchworth and the DNA that's in the social principles in the DNA of the town, which are actually actually still there. So I'm going to talk to you about those principles of Letchworth. Like I say, I'm not a planner or architect. You can save uh, all those technical questions for the others at the end. Um, uh, and I do know that people are, have been sceptical about garden cities, I've noticed too that every new development that seems to turn up, apart from this next one, has tagged itself as a garden city. Actually, and I'm thinking, well, what do they, what do they actually mean by garden cities? And government used the term, and I think it just thought initially it was like a, a, a good marketing term, better better word than than the new town, actually. But actually, it's, it's not just a word; it's not just a term. It is a concept. And one of our goals for, as the New Garden Cities Alliance is to actually hold them to the concept. If you want to use the term garden city, actually, it has to mean something. Um, and that's what I'm going to try and answer today. What is a garden city? How do you become one? And what are those special ingredients? And of course, as former mayor, I go around and people go, what is, what is a garden city exactly? Of course, I didn't know when I first, you know, it was a very difficult question to answer. And then people say, well, how do you actually become a garden city? It's quite complicated. Um, and I didn't realise, and I didn't think people in Letchworth realised actually how famous the town was across the world for, for uh, actually as the first garden city. And I once caught, shared a taxi from uh, Hong Kong airport, the Chinese visitor, we're going into downtown together. And he said, where are you from? And I said, uh, oh, England. And he said, uh, well, where in England? I said, oh, you, it's a tiny place. You've never heard of it. And he said, no, no, try me. I said, oh, Letchworth. And he goes, the garden city? And I said, you've heard of it. He goes, oh, he says, I'm, I'm on the government in Chengdu. We want to become a garden city. We're not really quite sure what it is. How do you become one? And fortunately, I was able to sell him a copy of my book, actually. <laughs> <laughs> 
and to help him out. But it's interesting because Let's has gone through this journey too. Actually, we're realising it's not a it's not a heritage it's actually got to look after or anything like that. It's not just about the height of hedges and the amount of green space and looking up, make sure people can't do the plank stuff, but it is still actually, should be on the cutting edge of the ideas of the new garden city. And it's actually updated and moved its uh, way forward. So what is special about a garden city? I'd say it's more than just bricks and mortar. Uh, it's a set of ideals. Um, in, the Chinese guy said to me that problem they had in China is they're building, uh, they're putting up houses, offices, factories. Uh, he says, but we're not getting community. What's going wrong? We're missing a special ingredient to actually create community. And the reason they'd looked back at Garden Cities was, because just like Howard, when he'd written his book in 1898, Britain was industrializing still at that time. People were coming from the countryside to the cities for the first time, and you had urban squalor and rural poverty hand in hand. And that's exactly where China is today. People coming for the first time and they said what worked in Britain, you know, in Britain all that time ago seemed to be garden cities. We want to actually try and harness that and see what we can, what we can do. Oh, I'm rubbish at the slides, don't worry. Uh, a basic level, Howard, when he thought about the garden cities, um, he... He, was, he thought about bringing the best of the town and country together, as, you, as you're probably familiar with the three magnets, three magnets idea. He'd seen Chicago rebuilt after the Great Fire. And Chicago, funny enough, had been called the Garden City, and that's where the term actually comes from. It wasn't one that he'd, he'd invented. But he also worked as a sonographer, that's like a typist in Parliament, typing up debates. And he mixed with politicians uh, and others and thinkers and actually slowly built up his vision of what it should be. And at a basic level, his vision was a place that would provide the jobs and services of the town combined with the green space and blue skies of the countryside, which you've heard before, and a place in which industry wouldn't pollute, a place in which homes and parklands were integrated together, and a, and a place where the train would actually be the main focus for transport. But more than that, though, I think he recognised that poverty wasn't lack of jobs, it was that lack of ownership. This was a key thing, thing for him. And he was very much concerned about absent landlords owning land in the, in the, in the city and the property and enriching themselves as, as land values rose. It wasn't the people who would actually capture that land value. He felt it was, actually, it was actually the absent landlords. And he wanted to see if he could solve that problem in part. That is what he set out to solve. I don't think there's a huge difference between those issues, perhaps in detail, but in substance, to what he faced then and what we're facing, what we're facing today. And I think one of the great things for Howard was that he didn't just go out and build Letchworth or anything, but he inspired a movement, a Garden City movement of people, actually, who believed in those values that he was actually putting forward. You know, and the creed that drove those early Garden City pioneers was actually to say yes to green space. Yes, I want to clean air. Yes, the ability to grow my own food. Yes, I want to be able to build, to build my own homes. And yes, to have a tangible stake in that community as it's built. I mean, it's become a bit unfashionable, that uh, values, but garden cities were appealing because exactly that reason, they had values and people were attracted to the fact that they had, they had, had those values. And this idea of green space and clean air, I speak this morning, talks about 27% of people, I think you said, kids had not played outside their own gardens, actually. And, um, and actually about audits of the landscape and Wellin, which is interesting, if you go around Wellin, when they first built Wellin, they went around and they audited all the trees in the landscape first, and then they built around, actually, the order that they got. And I just thought that was, that was good. 
And I think people believed back then, in the early Garden City movement, that if they combined their voices together, that there was no problem they could not solve, no destiny they could not fulfil. They believed it then, and we believe it now, still. Today, what we would talk about for Howard's things, we would use the term sustainability, I think. But I think across the board sustainability, social, economic, and ecological sustainability. Not socially affordable just at the time when people purchase their homes, but always affordable, 100 years on. Not just actually generate wealth when the place is built, but actually capture that wealth for 100 years going forward. And wealth can always be captured. Not just ecologically sustainable when it's built, but actually in its operation and it's going forward. Of course, Howard was initially dismissed as a utopian dreamer. Um, but when his talk about land value capture where it started to take, uh, take root. Uh, Lenin apparently came to Lechwas and was very interested. And a lot of the early Bolshevik um, uh, town planners uh, actually were in, in exile in Lechwas. And they tried to turn <laughs> Moscow, interestingly, into a garden city uh, when, before Stalin turned up and changed everything. Uh, but there you go. Um, but, but all this talk of land value capture, one of the things that actually happened was that people then got concerned that, that uh, Howard was offering people sort of a degree of false hope about what they would actually get for the future. And, they said, and then they said they would never be able to actually happen. But he actually did empower a movement from the ground up, and made up of regular citizens, not planners and architects, but people who actually agitated through Garden City Associations, which were formed across the country to agitate for homes and communities and what they wanted. I mean, I'm not a planner, but I kind of look at all the consultations that people are doing in different places, and I say, why should you not be sowing the seeds for Garden City associations in these places for the long term, not just to consult in the short term? Uh, and I think the reason that people were interested in the Garden Cities and the concept was because these weren't company towns. Yeah? They weren't built by companies for grateful employees. They weren't based on that principle of charity and paternalism. People weren't expected to be grateful for actually having... For the, for the new homes they wanted to build it, move into. It was based on the ideas that people were going to be empowered and those, to be active in their communities. And, that, and by being active, they would be able to shape the development of their settlements, those people who live there and those who live nearby. And today, we must be, we're far better actually qualified to actually understand how to do, how to do some of these things, particularly with things like um, participatory budgeting and others. Um, so to the cynics on the Garden City... I would say that there is nothing false about the Garden City uh, vision and model. There can't be anything false about a model that does, so does seek to end the outrage of unavailable and unaffordable housing by making it sustainable for the long term. And I don't think there's anything wrong with a model that actually sets out to seek to empower communities. And I think that's what the Garden Cities do. The key point in the Garden City model is, of course, it is land value capture. Uh, uh, and it, which is, I've read in the Times that even the Conservative government are now talking a lot about it, might even come up at conference this year. Uh, and, you know, the reason they're actually talking about land value capture is not that it's not a utopian model, it's actually a very practical model, actually. It's a practical model that works when we can look at some examples across, across the world where actually it's actually worked very, very effectively. And we know the few of the models we've got in the UK, community land trusts, You've also got the idea of land value taxation. We like, and the Garden Cities Alliance, the uh, cooperative land bank model, which um, Sham Turnbull has proposed, which effectively is the idea of splitting uh, the deeds from land and, uh, and property in, in, into two deeds, and, they, in, and extends the idea of condominium ownerships. Instead of just owning 
in common, like the land for that one building that you're actually in. You actually own land in common for the whole of the, the whole of the city, which means that actually, if good things and bad things happen in the city, everyone benefits. If you build a new tube station or train station in one part, it's not just that people who live nearby it actually can see their land values rise. Everyone's going to get the benefit. Also, if the neighbouring county council build their waste disposal plant on the edge of the other side of the city, everyone is actually sharing and pulling that pulling that risk. So. To summarise what we're saying so far is Howard felt that there are special ingredients for a garden city. He felt that there is a secret, that the secret is to think about the long term and it's about the social and visible architecture, not just the, the, the invisible architecture, not just the physical architecture, the two sides of the same coin that you can't add these in afterwards. It's actually got to be there in the DNA, in lecturers, I'm sorry, as it is in lecturers. And I'd say some of the key things that actually help people share, enjoy and prosper are actually the ability to grow food. I think it's integral to a garden city, actually, because it creates social space and actually the part for, for building citizenship. And the Chinese are very interested in this part. The idea of green space, about connectivity. Connectivity is what makes a place prosper, actually. And I think it's actually the ability... I think self-build has to be integral in any garden city that's actually going to happen, actually, to go forward. I think the, the heart of the Garden City is actually about citizenship, actually, in the long term. Actually, it's about people, those principles of ownership and participation that people, people can have. Uh, but the Garden City legacy, I was saying, does it actually work? If we just take Letchworth, for example, uh, when Howard founded it as like a kind of co-op type town, uh, the Garden City company that owns Letchworth, which is the inheritor of the first Garden City company, still has assets of £127 million in the town today uh, and generates an annual revenue of £7 million a year. That's not council tax, that's additional money that they just raised through rents and things and they put it back into, into a cinema and various other projects in the, in the town. And this is on a town of only 35,000 people and there's this amount of untapped wealth that's there. Yeah, land value capture does work. And if you look at two other examples, which are Milton Keynes Parks Trust, um, as you know, Milton Keynes has this idea of forest in the city, actually, and they're saying, well, if you can plant all these trees and have all this green space, how, how ever is the council going to afford to do this? And we talked this morning about actually parks being without any funding and all being cut. Well, Milton Keynes hasn't got such a problem because they're endowed with £20 million pounds worth of commercial assets in the town to actually to generate the revenue to pay for, that tr pay for the upkeep of those parks going forward. Of course, 20 years on, it's not worth £20 million. Now those assets are worth £90 million. In Burlington in Vermont, Bernie Sanders was the mayor in 1984. And he, when he was mayor, he endowed a local community land trust with $200,000 to actually start a community land trust. They've now actually developed that trust and it's now worth about $50 million, actually. It's the most successful community land trust in the country. But the alternative, actually, as I've got on here, is actually about the Jubilee Line, actually. And it's probably going to be Crossrail as well, but I don't know the figures. But in the Jubilee Line, they invested £3.5 million worth of taxpayers' money to actually improve the area for everyone to live. It re but land values rose surrounding that area by thir to £13 billion. And all the people, if you go to Southwark, aren't the people that lived there originally. They've all been driven out by higher rents going up because the land value wasn't captured for the people that live there. So actually, when you spend public money, it's actually about capturing. And I think this is why what gets government's attention. But if you do go to Hong Kong, actually, one of the things interesting there, because the land was all owned by the Crown, they wanted to extend the underground in Hong Kong. Uh, they could make it self-financed. They said, we're going to build a new underground station, push it out a little bit, 
and the land values would rise, they, they designate a shopping centre to be built there, and that would generate the revenue to pay for the infrastructure costs. So practical, it's not just a utopian idea. Uh, principles of a garden city, how would you become one? You're probably all familiar with the TCPA principles, uh, particularly about they've got food in here and actually capturing land value. Uh, and for my book on the garden cities, we came up with 12 principles, which are very much complementary to the garden city, uh, uh, to, the t to the TCPA ones. Um, which, interesting enough, we wrote at com completely separately from the TCPA stuff, actually. But there's a, there's a lot. And I'm very pleased to see, actually, because our 12th one was about wealth and harmony measured by happiness, which I kind of felt has a good, very good link to today, actually. Um, if you're going to build a garden city or you're going to build a place, and I'm saying, well, why shouldn't you have a charter or a manifesto or a deed for that garden city that people can believe in? Because here's the thing is, when I moved to Letchworth, I was really surprised that people called themselves citizens of Letchworth. And everyone was always very cross with the Heritage Foundation uh, about how they were spending the money and what was going on in the town. And I thought, how has that actually happened? It's because people believe the place belonged to them. There was a promise there at the start, actually, a social promise which went into the DNA of the town. People called themselves citizens of the town, and that actually carried forward. And I thought, I think that's such a powerful, uh, such a such a powerful thing to actually have. And I think actually, and I was saying what we were talking about for a garden city is actually it should actually mean something. And uh, a couple of years ago, we had a conference in Letchworth. And we said, well, actually, there's going to be a garden city. If we can have fair trade towns, we can have transition towns and others that actually can be certified to mean something. Why can't we do the same for garden cities? Why can't we build a consensus around the view of what is a garden city and actually build an accreditation process for places to go forward? Because then the power is people, local authorities, set out their vision for a garden city. No one's going to believe them. Yeah? They set, then they can back it up with principles of, of what it's actually going to be. And if those principles can be backed up with methods that can be delivered, and then we can accredit, then everybody can actually be a winner. People can have confidence to call places garden cities. Because if you go back, actually, the only real places called garden cities before were the ones that was done by Howard, Parker and Unwin. No one else really had the confidence to actually say that it was a garden city unless they were very closely assigned. We want to build good places. We want good, I think garden cities are good places and, we should, and that's the whole idea of the Garden Cities Alliance. Uh, we did find that actually this idea of what a garden city was, you know, I could run through these 12 principles and people would be falling asleep and all going through. We've kind of felt that there should be an easier way to interpret or articulate what a garden city actually was. And we did another declaration, I like declarations actually, and it's called this one, the Garden City Declaration. And, and that was that the garden city or village should aim to be judged for a place that is socially, ecologically and economically sustainable. And we haven't just come up with those, those are the UNESCO sustainability goals, actually. And we think, actually, articulate, what's your garden city? These are the three things that actually we would try and articulate against. Uh, in terms of actually those principles and those um, uh, and the vision, the principles and the methods, we produced a, a toolkit actually which people can contact me and actually which actually de which actually blows up and gives actually details of actually how how various ones of these can be achieved. So I'm not going to run through all these now. So how can you become a garden city? What we're saying is actually 
you need to be a place that's going to be socially, ecologically and economically sustainable. And these we consider to be the three new magnets for the 21st century for people to work on. And those three magnets are, you know, it's going to be homes for all, prosperity is captured in a place that is um, carbon neutral and waste efficient. So in, to summarise then, what is a garden city? I'm going to keep saying this so you all get it. Socially, economically, ecologically sustainable place. How do you become one by demonstrating adherence to those principles on those three there? And what are the special ingredients from a garden city? I'd say those are real land value capture, not just messing about with SIL and 106, but actually something real and substantial that's going to be there, going to carry on going forward forever. You know, you get your shopping centre coming, your Tesco's coming in, why actually just get them to build a doctor's surgery? Why not get them to actually pay every year, forever, actually money which can go back in, into the community? I think food and green space are part of the special ingredients. I think self-build is part of that special ingredient. And I think connectivity is, is part of the magic that's actually going to make it all happen. A garden city, a place worth living in, a place where we can all share and joy and prosper, and a place that delivers health, happiness, and harmony. Thank you very much. Thank you.